Coming up on episode 180 of Wheel Bearings, we're joined by Alex Roy, host of the No Parking Podcast, the Autonicast, and lots more. We're driving the 2021 Cadillac Escalade, Genesis GV80, Audi A6 All-Road Prestige, and Infiniti QX50 Autograph. We talk about big changes at Lotus and a refresh for Tesla before we finish up with a reader question. That's all ahead on episode 180 of Wheel Bearings. Did you know you can support Wheel Bearings directly? Head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia and you can become a patron today. Your contributions will help fund the platforms and tools we use to bring the podcast to you. And exclusives and improvements are already on the way thanks to your generosity. So if you want to be part of an automotive podcast like no other, head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam Abual Samich from Guidehouse Insights. I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives. And we have a guest this week. It's, it's your turn. Okay. <laughs> I'm Alex Roy, uh, a friend to Dan, Rebecca, and Sam, uh, a fan of Wheel Bearings for a long time. Uh, it's nice to be invited in a show where um, I have a friendly, uh, friendly uh, invitation. Um, <laughs> And should I say what I, I guess my, what, what I do? Right? Yeah, definitely. I was yeah, going to say, you're not just you? a friend of Wheelbury. Who the hell is Alex Roy? <laughs> well, thanks for having me on the show. Um, to be clear, my day job is Director of Special Operations at Argo AI, although I do not represent Argo on my appearance on Wheelbury's today. Um, but I'm also um, a columnist at Ground Truth, which is the um, educational site set up um, by Argo AI to tell the truth about autonomous vehicles and actually how the technology will propagate. And I co-host the No Parking Podcast with Argo AI CEO, Brian Seleski, which um, is meant to have honest conversations around AI and self-driving. And that's why Sam has been on the show and why I'm so thrilled to be on Wheel Bearings today. Isn't there another show that you also do? Uh, you're referring to Autonicast, yeah. um, which is the unscripted. As long as you're here, um, you might as well plug it. Yeah. Autonicast <laughs> is the unscripted circus that I co-founded and co-host with Edward Niedemeyer, um, of the PAVE organization, which is, again, an educational organization around autonomous vehicles. Um, and Kirsten Korosek, who was just promoted to... Transportation editor, I think? At, at TechCrunch, uh, and who is, um, like yourselves, one of the few credible journalists covering this sector. Um, so I, I feel like my boat, um, you know, but my boat rises when I'm, you know, engage, engaging with you fine people. Credible. I think I just get the contact high from from uh, Sam and Rebecca. I, just, <laughs> That's right, how I credible feel. journalism. Well, great, credible. glad to be here, everybody. Thanks. I love your show. I, well, thank you. Do thank you, you do you sit through like the entire uh, episode, like in one sitting? Do you do do the whole episode? Because we've been kind of long lately. So you mean oh, oh wheel bearings? Yeah, uh, I can. Well, I, Certainly, it would never be true of any show that I'm that I host. I can never listen or watch myself. <laughs> um, no, I, I put it on, I put things on like wheel bearings and um, Doug Demiro, like mm -hmm. in the background as I'm doing other it. stuff. And then if I hear something and catches me, I, I will sit down, rewind 15 seconds. I'm like, I'm out to that. Nice. So, uh, well, how much time do we have to listen to podcasts? You have to pick like three or four, and that's it. Yeah. Well, I I like the. You should see my my subscription list in Pocket Casts. I have, I have about uh, ninety odd shows in my subscription list. Uh, some of those, probably about a third of those, are currently either retired or on hiatus. But I leave them in there just in case. Every once in a while, some of them pop back up again. But you know, I have about fifty or sixty shows that what? I listen to on a regular basis. 
But I, you can't. How? I, I used to be able to when I was commuting. Empty you know, nester. I, I would I would commute like you know ninety miles a day, so I had plenty of time in the car. Now I'm not commuting, so I have to ex- invent excuses to to go be in the car because otherwise, like I'm I'm writing or I'm doing something where I I can't I can't split my attention that way. If I write and listen to a podcast, I start typing the transcript. So <laughs> um, I need to I need to do something else. But yeah, uh, I actually just finished yesterday uh, taking the dog back and forth to the groomer, the Jason Torchinsky episode of uh, No Parking, which is f- fantastic. Uh, he's uh, he's, he's, um, he's lovely and special. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you wish that there were more uh, people. I mean, he's a true polymath, you know, because he can illustrate um, the ideas in his head which is really a gift. And I wish I had that gift. Yeah. Well, he's really entertaining to listen to as well. He's very, uh, you know, very sharp about, uh, well, his, his book, uh, was what you were talking about too. So that was, that's a good one. I, nobody, if I, anybody in our, our audience is looking for another show to, to check out, start there. Is that, that's What's the name one. of the book and the podcast again? The, the book is robot take the wheel and the lost art of driving. And the podcast is the Jason Torchinsky episode of no parking. Uh, the interesting thing about, uh, the most interesting thing I learned from his book and talking to him is that one, if, if one is looking, trying to look back on the history of automation in transportation and draw a direct line from the autonomous vehicle development today back to I guess, uh, thinkers of the past, Torchinsky, well, the, the most fantastical example of ancient autonomy would be the concept of a flying of a magic carpet that you could summon and it would find its way to you. And then it would, you could command it to take you places and it would do so magically and perfectly. But the first real world design is Da Vinci's cart that, uh, and he was the first, I think Twitch is the first person to cite that as a, the first example of an automated or semi-automated vehicle. And uh, he found his, uh, sketches of it. And apparently someone designed a working model of it um, a few years ago. So it's, it's That's interesting, cool. interesting read. And there's, pictures of it um i like someone to find the working model from italy <laughs> and, try, and take that to the darpa challenge <laughs> or you can probably 3d print one now um i'll i'll put uh the the link to that episode of the show and also a link to uh his book uh in the show notes so if anybody's looking you can you can just click right there and get right to it um yeah i remember i, I the first time I met Jason uh was a few years ago at the SA World Congress uh, when he did a talk there uh, you were there as well, Alex, and and that was that was a fascinating fascinating uh, talk that he did. Yeah, uh, he he's um, he's one of my favorite authors, no regardless of uh, yeah. platform. Well, so. One of my favorite things that, that Jason's been doing of late is this whole saga with the Changli EV. Yes, he, I talked about that with Peter Egan, which oh, did you? Yeah, um, just it's kind, kind of a modern day uh, uh, take on the uh, Isetta. Yeah, well, it's the same kind of concept. Yeah. Yeah, they um, the episode that or the video that um, that uh, Jason did with Sandy Monroe with the Chang Lee was hysterical. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I watched that as well. So um, now that we've sent everybody away from our podcast, <laughs> let's do other things. Cracking. Let's let's con- let's conclude the audience development section by just uh, <laughs> shouting out our newest um, patrons. So we've gotten a couple of blind spot monitors. Our friend Chuck Goolsby, who's been a podcast listener commenter since like the auto blog days. So welcome, Chuck. Uh, Steve Dito also uh, kicked in on Patreon. And then we've got some forward collision alert uh, folks, Mark and Will Randolph. Will is another one who's uh, a long term 
um, friend within the in the business. So uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you for your support. I hope it's worth it. <laughs> Moving on. It's worth it. I love this show. I awesome. wouldn't do, I wouldn't do beyond if I didn't actually love the show. Good, good. That's uh, the high standards. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about what we're driving because we were we were sort of talking about that a little bit before we decided to just start recording. And I, I think, um, given the contrast that you pointed out, Alex, you need to go first and tell us about your your latest uh, your latest time behind the wheel. Uh, well, I daily drive a Tesla Model Three, and uh, I love it. Um, despite it has all kinds of problems, but I love the car. Uh, but recently, took out of storage my father's old car. Uh, a 1987 Porsche 911 Targa, which is in about as mint condition as one can find such a car. Uh, Sam, you've driven it pretty mm-hmm. sorted out, it's, right? It's, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and so I uh, I just moved to Miami and I've been driving the Targa for a few days. And it is amazing how much my driving skills have declined after two years of Tesla <laughs> ownership. My My driving skills are not at all what they use. Like, I'm just so used to having... To you, I'm reading using radar cruise control, but specifically autopilot <laughs> and the lane keeping functionality, which for all its safety flaws is pretty good when it works. Uh, that I find myself in the Porsche cruising and wanting to repeatedly look down at my phone and then realizing that is the most dangerous thing I could possibly do. And wow, uh, I think we're going to see. Like five years from now, when every car has got just ubiquitous driver assistance that's decent, um, people who drive older cars are, you're not going to want to get into an older car because your skill decrement's going to be really bad, uh, really bad. Oh, that um, makes me so sad. Um, and I, I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm a great driver, but I thought I was attentive and I just, you know, yeah. I'm getting older and I see my skills going down. I can see it. Well, I think it's not just older cars, too. I mean, how we define an older car is five to seven years old because they don't have all that ADAS. Speak for yourself. Well, no, I mean, but, <laughs> I mean, my- but you know, for the gen, I'm talking about the general public, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about our listening public. And, you know, we, we get a lot of, I think all four of us get a lot of questions about what car should I buy, you know, for my teenager or for my mom or for myself. And it's one of the things that I always talk to people about to say, you know, you've got to understand like a car that is a 2014 could be a completely different animal than a car that's a 2015 and 16 and 17. And so it's just, it's something that people need to be aware of, especially because the average age on the, on the, of the cars on the road today is like 11 years old, 12 years old. So when you go to buy, if you're buying a used car, you just have to be aware of what's in there. I'm not talking about fabulous vintage antique cars, yeah. by all means. But like a Miata. Yeah, certainly for mainstream yeah, cars. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, for, for mainstream cars, yeah, you're right. You know, if you go from a 12, 15-year-old car, and even if you buy a used car, it's you're probably going to be going to a 7- or 8-year-old car or maybe a 5-year-old car. And that change is going to be pretty dramatic, probably, you know, a lot more dramatic than, you know, when you went from whatever you had before that 12-year-old car to that one. Uh, you know, we, we've had so much change in technology in the last decade and the it's that that is one of the big risks that we we're going to have is this atrophying of our driving skills. Um, you know, and, and this is, you know, I, you know, we all, or, you know, these the three of us, you know, drive new cars all the time. And so, you know, we're constantly experiencing this and, you know, but you know, I try to get back into my Miata as, as frequently as I can, you know, to, you know, just to, 
to drive. You know, like remind and, yourself what physics are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and that was what I was gonna. That was what I was gonna ask you, Alex. Is uh, you know how uh, I guess how ex- uh, extreme is that contrast of being so close to the machine? You know, I can't think of a, a car that puts you as in touch with the machinery, maybe like a, a, a Lotus Elise or something. Right. Then, Actually, a new Lotus is probably yeah. about the same. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, like the 911, uh, especially that generation of 911, like you just, it hums with the energy of the engine and you just feel everything up the steering column and everything versus the Model 3, which is a lot more isolated. So, Well, I can tell you this. My father said to me when I was in high school, and I said, oh, Dad, I really want to own a car like yours someday. He's like, your left leg's going to hurt, and both <laughs> your arms are going to be strong, and your back's going to hurt, and you're not going to be able to carry anything. But specific to the ergonomics, all those things are true. Uh, my left leg hurts, my arms are <laughs> and it's um, it's a very uncomfortable car. Uh, and it doesn't even have power steering. I mean, nothing. Um, and my dad, uh, he always complained about his Porsche and then l- loved getting into his 77 Cadillac Fleetwood, which he owned until the day he died in 2000. <laughs> like, and I, now suddenly I understand it. I understand the, the desire to have power everything and comfort everything. Um, but, you know, the, the uh, derailing our episode, uh, the, the uh, Standard went, operating procedure. Yeah, I, went into, <laughs> I, went, I went to visit several car dealerships recently to help a family member buy a car. And, you know, the budget was 30000 or under, small crossover. And, you know, my first question going in, the guy's like, oh, are you familiar with the Mazda brand? I'm like, listen, bro, does it have radar, radar cruise control? And he's like, well, it has adaptive cruise control. <laughs> and then I knew this whole thing was going off the rails. And I feel like the... I feel like a lot of people going in the door, maybe even fans of your show going in the door are going to encounter this because you're going to give a recommendation. And then along with it, they're going to go into a store and say, I want to buy X, X, Y, and Z with these features. And the salesman doesn't understand the context of the question. Um, and that scared me. Then the guy was trying to sell me on, you know, a lane keeping assistance. I'm like, bro, come on. <laughs> like, really? Like, come on. So, um, yeah, I feel. You see that, you see the thing we drove up in? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I thought LKA was lightly LKA was like a lot. Yeah, here let me ask you me three of you a question, because you're very knowledgeable people. And I could not get an answer from Subaru on this, um, or anyone else. And I think I'm pretty knowledgeable. You get if you go to a Subaru dealership and you're shopping for an outback or any actually um any of like the wagon crossover models, and you look at the options chart, um uh, they have a, a comprehensive standard package of uh, driver assistance features, including radar cruise and lane keeping. But if you go up the chain to sport and, and premium models, um, uh, then they have a thing called eyesight. Mm-hmm. Some it's some kind of driver monitoring. And I I thought I was no, an expert. Actually, Subaru what? doesn't use radar for cruise control. The, their camera- eyesight is a stereo stereo camera system. So it's two cameras set on either side oh. of the mirror. Okay, so I'm wrong, actually. The, so I cited it standard. It's yes. dri- the thing that they have is driver focus tech is, is like on the upper models. Can anyone tell me what driver focus is? So no, the dealer could. I, uh, I don't know exactly how Subaru implements it, but for a while, like I would say at least the last seven years, some cars, when I drive them in a certain manner, will light up a little coffee cup icon and tell me that it's time to take a break. Usually it's because I've made some strange inputs that they've noticed either through their their you know steering angle sensor and just the the um, 
the stability control has has noticed that um, I'm either doing donuts or something. Right. Um, so I think you could do it that way, where you just look at the inputs without a camera on the driver, which I know a lot of the newer systems are doing now, where they've they've added actual like driver camera monitors. Um, to make the driver sure that, focus in a Subaru is not a camera based system. No. Yeah. So no, I think it, it's, it doesn't, it's doesn't look like it. It's and, looking and, at the the inputs and comparing them between you know what would be expected and and uh, you know if you're making lots of sharp erratic inputs like you would if you're kind of trying to drive. Um, okay, I, I get a little that. Aggressively. So going back for a second, to what Sam said because this is why I love this show because I'm actually learning something, Sam. So what I'm understanding here about the Subaru dealership is that their adaptive cruise is not radar based which i Correct. thought it was and it's camera based and when i asked that question the guy's response was well it's adaptive he didn't give me the second piece of information which is it is um adaptive and yet doesn't require radar which would have put that in. so i thought he was an idiot and he didn't understand where i was coming from thank you for teaching me something he may You're not welcome. have known i mean i know that uh, more than likely he is, didn't know well yeah, brain uh, training is really important though so like that's uh fascinating that, that's something you. you should talk to the zone rep about Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'm done talking. Tell me about your cars. Well, no, but what's interesting is I went on the Subaru Crosstrek launch and I don't think they talked about it at all. I don't know if it's in the Crosstrek though. It is. It is. is. So maybe I wasn't paying attention. I don't know. There might've been a puppy involved. Let me ask you a question, Rebecca. (laughs) Do you like the Crosstrek? You know what? I, and actually, I just had one a couple weeks ago. I think it's a fun car. I think it's a great run. I think I called it like a, a little a suburban runabout. So, you know, I like the fact that it's all wheel drive. I like the ride height of it. It's got really good ground clearance. I remember actually um, writing something for Forbes right after Hurricane Sandy. And the Crosstrek had one of the highest ground clearances. And when and so I was out of town for Hurricane Sandy at, at a, a Ford event, actually. And when I got back, I was trying to drive home in my Fiat 500. And let me tell you, there were branches down that were bigger than that car. Right? <laughs> and so I looked at like all the different cars that had a decent amount of ground clearance for things like that, or like the snowstorm that we're supposed to get, you know, in the next day or two with eight to 12 inches of snow. So I think it's, I like the fact that it's a smaller vehicle uh, with really good ground clearance, especially for the size. Okay, so I liked it. And my daughter may end up point, in one. So Yeah. So my nephew Jake, I uh, he his his mom had leased one and then she didn't need her lease anymore. So he took it over and he's 26 now and driving all over the place. And, you know, his girlfriend lives someplace else and the whole thing. And he loves it. And he's really been happy with it. And I really liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I think I talked about it on the show a couple episodes ago. Yeah. So to get back to the driver focus for a moment uh, uh, while you guys were talking, I was looking it up. In fact, Subaru does have a camera uh, that's looking at the driver. And as Dan said, most of the systems, most of the earlier systems were just using the, the steering input information, basically the same way that Tesla tries to detect if the driver's hands are on the wheel, looking for so those, stick some oranges looking for in those, there steering, those little out. steering wheel motions and it you know, tries to detect your normal pattern. When there's a deviation from that, then it says, Hey, maybe you might be tired. And then newer systems use the forward-looking camera for the, the lane-keeping assist. And you know, if you're you know, bouncing off the, the lanes too frequently, then it again, you know, thinks, okay, maybe you're tired or in, you know, otherwise incapacitated. Imagine um, if you put the Subaru driver focus system 
on a Tesla so it can analyze what the Tesla is doing. Yeah. <laughs> and then Subaru actually has a camera that's doing, um, you know, looking f- for your eye gaze um, and, and your head position uh, to detect if you're getting tired. So there's or actually if you're looking at your phone. There's a company yeah. nearby here or in Connecticut called Drive, D-R-E-Y-E-V. And I've met with them a couple of times just because we're both in the industry and there's not that many people around here. And they offer a driver facing camera, a forward facing camera, a fleet dashboard. And it's basically it's they would like it to be part of you know, the vehicle build, but right now it's aftermarket, but they're using it a lot in commercial applications. And so it's very much, um, you know, following the eye position, eyelid closing patterns to detect drowsiness and things like that. So it's, it's, you know, I think it, it, it basically focuses very much on the driver's head and, you know, like, like Alex, like you were talking about where you're, you know, distracted by your phone and, you know, the temptation to look over. And so they drive, uh, system is very much a, a tentative just to the driver. What I'd like to see, and I imagine the three of you are all over this at some point in the future, um, you know, Euro NCAP city standards are going to require f- some type of driver monitoring system in the future. And I, I'm not aware that they've defined what, how it's designed or even necessarily exactly how it's going to work. But I'd love to see in the future a comparison of the different driver monitoring systems. Driver focus, the old coffee cup systems, yeah. <laughs> um, seeing machines as the system in what Cadillac and Cadillac, the BMW yeah. and the new Ford F-150. And then there's um, uh, Eyesight, which is and out of Sweden, right? Um, uh, Eyesight is the brand for Subaru's link. There's a bunch of different yeah, ways. Anyway, yeah. I'd like to see them compared, actually compared on in a safe and on a track with someone being distracted and how the alerts work. And the alerts is one half. Then I'd like to know how the OEMs use those alerts to trigger or or not trigger systems to mitigate or compensate. And I think that's the future of automotive journalism. And I'm wait. hopefully, you know, if anyone's going to do it, it'll be you. Um, <laughs> since the state of automotive journalism technically is those things that aren't always connected. I, I will say that the Cadillac <laughs> system is very, um, I have an Escalade this week. So the Cadillac system has already given me the attention warning. Um, I was trying to do something with their infotainment and it got to the point where I, just, I picked up my phone and was making the call and it more it was like hey knock it off <laughs> so it's it's not shy uh which I, I think is good uh and i think that's one of the things that automotive journalists need to to recognize is the safety systems that we've for decades called like nannies uh yeah if you're if you're driving in a particular way if you're if you're driving like an enthusiast they're going to in- intervene but for the people who aren't trying to trigger a slide they're better. <laughs> they're, they're worth having. And those warning, it's like when your bank shuts down your credit card because it notices uh, weird transactions, even if it was you, you're happy that they did it because it could not have been you at some point. So it's that same kind of thing. It's it, they're, they're protective for most people who shouldn't be driving like we drive. Yeah. <laughs> we, we shouldn't be driving like we drive sometimes. So well, speak for yourself. So yeah, what exactly. are you guys, what are you all driving? Well, isn't that what the segment's about? Uh, okay. um, <laughs> Go well, ahead, I, I just teased the Escalade. So I, I mean, okay. I've got an, an yeah, Escalade, yeah. which is uh, $109,000 and it's just super lovely and I adore it and I don't want to give it back. 
um, <laughs> it's you know it's a typical press fleet uh, Cadillac. So it's well, actually it's not. I was going to say it's what you imagine a Cadillac to be, like white leather interior, which is like that's a, a classic Cadillac thing. Um, I I don't necessarily want to own that, but it's lovely. <laughs> it just fan really nice. all ball, ballpoint pens and you'll it, be fine it's, it's, right. it's, it's also perfect for uh <laughs> taking your labradoodle to the groomer yeah, or, vis- that's exactly or visiting alex in miami yeah. I, right <laughs> i put i put a uh towel down on the seat uh, but it has the screens in the back and it, so it's loaded up with tech it's all the materials are really nice and that's what really stands out is the outside is fine it looks like cadillac escalade they've done a really nice job uh evolving the style but inside is really where it impresses. You know, it's got a big sweep of screens, and the screens are they're really high-quality screens. That's one thing I was noticing is they, they must be OLED or, or they are. something. They are OLED. But, man, do they look good. And I don't like really, I don't really like screens in cars. But, uh, the, and it sweeps all the way from be, the very left side of the uh, instrument panel all the way over to the center stack. Um, so there's a lot of screen in it, and it's it's well done. Some of the interface, the touchscreen part of it, isn't great. Some of the stuff is hard to find, and the, the targets are a little small. We constantly say that. I think as I've spent a few days with it, it's gotten better. Um, but the the overall driving experience is fantastic. It feels light on its feet. It's got the 6.2-liter V8, which... Uh, I don't want to talk about the fuel economy I'm getting. <laughs> um, it's using fuel. It, Let's leave it at that. Yes, it's using fuel. Um, so thank you, everybody with the efficient cars for leaving some for me. Uh, <laughs> it's it. But it's, you know, it's such a big thing. And that's why I was noticing that it, it really it handles and rides quite well. So the new independent rear suspension makes a big difference. It doesn't feel as heavy as it is. Uh, and it, it it's not that it feels small. You know, some cars, they, they just sort of shrink around you when you when you drive them. Uh, it still feels big, but it feels maneuverable and, and um, uh, just sort of well-controlled. Uh, so, And it's the newest one in its class, so I'm hopeful that it pulls everybody else along. I was, I was commenting to my wife. I was like, you know, the, the Navigator, which we also like quite a bit because, I mean, we like to be coddled New Englanders. Um, that one feels a little bit heavier, a little, little less light on its feet, a little more clumsy almost. Um, so, but neither of them are, are real clumsy. These are amazingly nimble vehicles for what they do. And I just, I love the size. I really like the new features. The, the tech in the, the Cadillac has, has come a long way. Um, you know, this is a real, real step up for, for Q, if they're still calling it Q. <laughs> um, and the, again, the, just the materials, I was, I just, I geeked out over how it's decorated in there. You know, there's, there's wood and leather and cloth, and it's just, it's beautiful. So whoever designed that interior did the best job. I, I love it in there. I just one question live in it. My, my big beef with so many cars is that everything you say is true until you use the backup camera. And then suddenly that screen resolution displays this low res trash. No, <laughs> no, that, honestly, and, like, yeah, for sure. It took me 15 minutes to figure out when it first came. So it's got forward looking cameras as well. And so you can put in the instrument panel behind the speed display, you can put, the augmented reality camera. So it's showing you a wider angle view of what's in front of the car as you drive. And I was like, I got to shut that off because I can see it in my periphery. I could see mm. all the, the, you know, the, the houses and stuff I'm going by. So it was distracting to me. But in like a parking lot or something like that, where you've got to maneuver tightly, 
it'll show you what's in front of the car in a really wide angle view that's nice. And it has night vision as well, which you can pop right behind there. So in that sense, if you can train yourself to not stare at the screen and look out the windshield, it has a lot of options to make it easier to maneuver such a large, tall vehicle, which that is one of the problems as trucks are getting so high that, you know, it's going to take you 50 feet before you realize you mowed over somebody's pet. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the screens are good. I was impressed with the screens, and, and I, I wanted to note that specifically because I normally hate screens. <laughs> Did uh, Two questions. <clears throat> Did the, the Escal- Does the Escalade you're driving have Super Cruise on it, and does it have the camera mirror system in it? Um, I don't believe it has Super Cruise. I'll have to check on the camera mirror. Um, okay. Uh, that's what you just flick it, right? The, um, yeah, just the flip camera. it. You know, the way you used to flip it, uh, you know, to go for, you know, when there's somebody driving with their, their headlights on behind you at night. Right. When you flip it now, it switches over to the camera view. So you have an unobstructed view, no pillars and headrests and all the other nonsense. So you can actually see what's behind you. Yeah, I I am pretty sure it does not have Super Cruise. Um that's probably an option to make like $115,000. <laughs> um, and the other car I had uh, real briefly was the, the Genesis GV80, um, which, again, talking about screens, that has a nice uh, instrument panel that is all screen, but it's like a 3D effect with it. I'm not quite sure what they've done with the screens, if they've got different actual planes in there that they for the display or something, but I was looking at that. That's, that's a really interesting... Uh, way to execute the instrument panel and i love i love the details in the gv80 everywhere you look it's just been fussed over and uh, to the you know little things that just make you smile it's got a backwards winding tachometer which i chuckled about i I, it's such a little geeky thing but i loved it um the outside design it's beautiful it it definitely looks expensive it doesn't really matter what it costs it just looks like it costs a lot Um, the interior look i mean based these pictures like if i saw it oh it's a new bentley <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Right. And, and the interior really is really gorgeous. Like. Yeah, um, it's gorgeous. I love the interior. It's really opulent inside. And, and Diamond Stitch says money, and it's yeah. got plenty of Diamond <laughs> Stitch. Um, you know, and that's so, you know, again, Genesis is just, they're doing a really good job uh, finding that balance of design and, and value and premium feel and look, uh, regardless of, of price, because this is, it was 72000 which again, that's, as premium car money, but it starts at 48, which that's attainable. You know, that's not that far up. You know, the, uh, the controls that you've, uh, Rebecca and Sam, that you've talked about, the little rotary controller, I yes. did experience a little bit of that where the, the rotary controller, I, it, it was too slippery. <laughs> like I couldn't yeah. get enough purchase on it. I mean, the biggest challenge that Genesis has, I think, as we've talked about a lot, is just the brand the brand image and recognition and you know because when i've had i haven't had the gb for exists awareness <laughs> you know all those things but when i i went on the gv launch gv80 launch but i haven't had one for the week here but when you know i, I when we're talking to people about it and certainly when i've had any of their sedans and i say you know this car is so good they're so beautiful and people are like, really? A Hyundai, a Genesis, you know, and it's just, I don't know what they need to do. They've got to put some money behind marketing and awareness beyond just golf tournaments. I know. And, guy. you know, and really <laughs> dig in and get some grassroots going um, because the cars are so good. Yeah. It would just be a shame for, for it not to be a successful brand. 
yeah, there's the opportunity. And it's not just they're well designed and they're comfortable and luxurious. They drive really well, which absolutely is like so it's the whole package. Which this is what they should have launched Genesis with. I'm, uh, I'm a little, yeah. an, you know, from the sidelines, I'm a little annoyed that it's taken them this long to get it to market. But it's it's also they had to get their their act together with it. So now that they've got it, they should very aggressively tell everybody that they have it because it's yes. really, really competitive and really good. So I'll stop talking now and, and move on. Rebecca, why don't you tell us what you're driving? So I had the 20, I had, I had two cars, but I'll focus on one for time. Um, I had the 2021 Audi A6 all road in the prestige, which is top of the line. And Alex smile you know, <laughs> most people know that um, Rebecca drives, I write car reviews in 200 words or less, and this is going to be less because the review is butter. That's it. <laughs> That's the whole review. Just butter. It really is. Uh, it's delicious. So, so just a little quick background. My neighbor raises golden retrievers, which I did not know when I bought my house, but believe me, it's a lot of happiness over there. <laughs> and so when I, when I first moved in, you know, I spent a lot of time out, outside because the grounds needed a lot of work. And one of my first days, these two gorgeous, gorgeous eight month old golden retriever puppies come over unleashed, uncollared. I didn't know where they came from. Did you steal and them? They were, I'm sorry. Did you steal them? I, I well, you them. know, so, so <laughs> the one, so the little girl, her brother would go and get all muddy and stuff and then he'd run home. And which then I figured out was a couple of doors, a couple of um, fields. Cause I live in the country. So they live, they live a field over. So then the little girl, she would actually want to come in the house. So I would let her in, but I needed to name her because I didn't know her name and I didn't know the neighbors. And so I called her butter because she was golden <laughs> and delicious. <laughs> and so now butter's eight years old and I keep asking the owner if I can please have her whenever. So, but so this car, it's just, it's, it's Teutonic butter. That's what I wrote in my review. So it's just so smooth. This has the, the 3.0 liter six cylinder engine. It's got 335 horsepower, which is so happy. I did triple digits without meaning to on a regular basis. And that's Come sub up <laughs> without meaning to. That's all without I, meaning I, to. I know I'm going to do 110 here, but <laughs> well, so I had a perfect excuse. I had to deliver um I sold this great big giant seven foot artificial tree. That's actually a really beautiful tree that I had gotten at a flea market or a, a estate sale here. I can't use it. I've got to sell it. So I had the perfect excuse to drive up about probably about 35, 40 miles all on the Merritt Parkway, which is a really windy, lovely road. And so I drove it up there. Two things, the tree fit perfectly into the car, which is impressive with the second row backseat down. And then that car was just so happy to be on the highway, to be in that kind of environment. But it was great around town also, you know, because I love that wagon. It's low, this low center of gravity. You can dive into curves. It's just, you know, it, it's great. People can get in and out of it really easily. You can get stuff in and out of it really easily. Uh, and, you know, it's not a minivan, but it still is a family hauler. And so... Go Audi. I loved it. The interior too. Dan, when you're talking about the Cadillac, every piece of this interior was beautiful. And I, I mean, people know, well, I can break any infotainment system that you give me. And this thing actually worked really, really well. I love the haptic feedback because then I know it's taken, 
you know, then I know it's, it's listening to me. (laughs) Right. And uh, so that worked really well for me. And it just, it was just a joy. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So 71.4 was the one that um, actually mine was about 75. Uh, It starts at 65.9 for the premium plus. And as I mentioned, I had the um, prestige. So 2021 Audi A6. Remind the listeners what car that was. I was just doing that. You were listening. 2021 Audi A6 all road. I had the prestige line. Absolutely delicious. Excellent. (laughs) And I, I had uh, the 2021 Infiniti QX50 autograph all-wheel drive. Um, and so the, the QX50 is is Infiniti's, like, it's a, it's a mid-sized crossover. Um, Isn't that sad that we have to explain that? I was just going to say that. I find it amusing that we have to explain the QX50. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it, this will, this, this vehicle will later this year also spawn the QX55, which you know, Infinity when they announced it a couple of months ago, you know, called it the, you know, the um, inspired by the uh, the old FX, the Infinity FX. You know, because Moment all the QX fifty five is a QX fifty with you know a little bit less of the roof. You know, it's right. kind of so they, they charge more. you more and they give you less. You get less rear headroom. You get you headroom. get less rear headroom, less roof, uh, less cargo. You space. get more style. But and you get a little more for, style. I will pay for like, style. That's every not what time. this is. This is the it's QX fifty like versus X six, right? Where like it's, I think. I think with the, the 50, you still get plenty of style. I think, you know, I, I like Infinity's design language. You know, I, I, sure. think, I think this is a really good looking vehicle. Um, the only engine that's available in the QX50 is the two liter um, VCT, the variable, variable compression turbo uh, engine, which, you know, we've talked about before. It's it's a really nice engine. It's a surprisingly good engine. Um, when I first heard about this, you know, this concept of this variable compression engine, you know, and I looked at the diagrams of this thing. Why the it's hell are they doing this? This makes no it's, sense. It's quite a contraption, yeah. fellas. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's a lot of hardware down in the bottom end of that engine. Yeah. Um, you know, to to you know change the compression ratio. But it's actually um, when you look at it in more detail, it's not as complex as it seems, and it actually works really well. And I remember when they first announced it, talking to the chief engineer on the engine at the LA Auto Show, uh, and you know explained that you know one of the advantages of this engine because of the the way uh, the you know this system works for varying the compression ratio essentially what it does is it twists the the crankshaft uh, a little bit and and the crankshaft is actually offset a little bit from the uh, from the center line of the cylinders so what ends up happening is you actually have low reduced side loads on the pistons as they're going up and down and so the engine is actually better balanced than it would be uh, normally. And it's even without balance shafts on it, it's actually smoother. Um, so it, it's actually a really nice engine to drive. It's 268 horsepower um, and 280 foot pounds of torque and, you know, good torque all the way through. You can actually pull up on the instrument cluster. You can, one of the, the bits of data that you can show is the compression ratio in real time, which, really? yeah, I mean, it's kind of pointless, but so geeky, you know, I mean, for, for an engine geek like me, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, but the reality is you can just drive this thing and it, it just drives really nice. It, it, you know, the, the autograph is the top end trim level. I think there's about five different trim levels available on the, on the QX50, um, you know, it's the ranges from uh, the. I got to add, yeah, wait, this is a $60,000 car, isn't it? 
Yeah, the, the the one I drove was uh, including the delivery charges sixty one thousand seven sixty five. But like, call me uh, primitive and ignorant, but I feel a little funny. Like two liters, I don't care how it's what it how it's designed for sixty thousand dollars. I'm like, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, go go look at you know modern BMWs and Mercedes. You're getting two liter four cylinders and most of those in that same price range as well. I feel like they're ripping me off. I don't know Jaguar. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, or, or Volvo for that matter. Yeah. yeah, but Volvo, I don't expect a big engine. It's a difference. Like, okay. <laughs> is this not but as performance oriented or why? It's just like in my mind, you know, maybe me, I'm suffering from um, Mesozoic era thinking. <laughs> uh, but, um, and also I haven't really owned a car with a small, a, mo- a small modern car with, a, with a, 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 an internal combustion engine. So like in my mind, I feel like I've not yet been convinced Am, am I just wrong? Um, you know, I was I was skeptical when, you know, these turbocharged direct injected engines first started coming out, you know, really back, I guess maybe almost 15 years ago now. Some of the first ones like from Volkswagen and Audi, and they're they're pretty commonplace now. <clears throat> and, um, you know, the, these modern engines actually re- feel a lot stronger than you would think. Yeah, I agree. You know, growing up. You know, a two liter engine was, you know, that's nothing. You know, I mean, I, 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 I've had, you know, I've had two liter engines, you know, that produced under a hundred horsepower and this feels like a much larger engine. You know, the reality is most people never look under the hood of their car anyway. And, you know, they don't care what's there. They, they drive it. And, you know, if the driving experience is good, then they don't, it won't matter how big the engine is. But Which to is, Alex's point, do you think that's true of the inf- of the Infinity buyer? Yeah, I, I think most Infinity buyers probably don't probably don't really care. Um, as long as it performs, they don't care long, about the as long specs. As, as long as it performs, yeah. You know, no, no, no one's buying a QX50 for the performance, but it does well, say yeah. 50 on it, and I just can't <laughs> disconnect. There's nothing five zero about this car, <laughs> right? I mean, you, except the price, which is six zero for the, zero for the yeah. top. Yeah, of I, just, I feel like it, a lot of infinity. Th- it started thirty eight thousand, so Th- that yeah. is value to me. I got yeah. yeah, but I feel like infinity buyers are a little bit more premium, a little more performance oriented than say a Lexus buyer. Yes, a Lexus RX in, buyer. In, in, in general, like I would that. say that that's definitely true, and this you know, overall has a sportier feel than an RX does. Yeah. No, there's no question about that. That's I mean, not hard. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, <laughs> I think this, the, the cars, this vehicle stance, um, you know, the, the way it moves down the road, it's body control, everything about it has a more athletic feel to it. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I think, it, I think it's well executed. W- would I pay 60 grand for it? No, probably not. Uh, but you know, in the, the mid forties, you know, for like the QX 50 Lux all wheel drive, you know, 43, 43, five for that one. So that's, this is the, that's not yeah, bad. This is the thing that I, I struggle with sometimes with media cars and, uh, I don't want to belabor the point, but you know, the interior in the trim that you've got beautiful. I love infinity interiors when we get them as media cars, cause they're usually really nicely executed. But when you start to look at the lower trims, they're not necessarily outfitted the same and that's where they feel like less of a value because for for the money you know for 45 you're getting something that's not necessarily going to have the quilted leather with the contrasting stitching and the accent stuff so you got to sort of carefully look at, at what you're you're getting for that 
price. And that's yeah, but it, and it's not just Infinity, but my other car that I didn't talk about that I, I was the Sentra, the Nissan Sentra, and that thing had a beautiful mm-hmm. interior. I mean, yeah. it was really, really nicely done. Yeah, for like you know, it had a really nice feel to it. And, you know, it's so and yes, it's all tricked out, but it's still, you know, was pretty inexpensive Even and loaded, you know, Sentra's, you know, what, twenty five, twenty six thousand. Yeah. I mean, that had a really, really nice feel. It didn't have Android Auto as does Infinity. Infinity doesn't either. Yes, it but um, well, that's what I thought. But when I was looking on, online, it doesn't show it I, on Infinity's. It, it, it only no, it, talks about Apple CarPlay. Uh, no, it's it's got Android Auto. I mean, I'm I'm looking at the the site right now, even on the base pure model CarPlay and Android Auto, and I I use it. So I'm it on the QX50. Is that what you're on? Yeah. The this is only highlighting Apple CarPlay because then I looked back and well, I was like, they may be, they may only be I highlighting didn't... that, but but it's got Android Auto. Well, Apple CarPlay, like you want to make sure that you attract those Apple customers. I mean, because yeah. I was thinking, I thought, how did I not notice this in the Sentra? <laughs> and the same thing on the Sentra website. Yeah, all, all Nissans have both. That's what I thought. But why it's, would they only? Yeah. That's oh, half the global population has an Android Auto, has an Android phone. I half. think actually probably more. Get your head yeah. out of America, people. Drives me is crazy. It, is it actually like well, you actually probably know? But it's <laughs> the, probably more than half that has the, the U, Android. The U.S. Right? is the the one exception where like fifty five percent is iPhone, and the rest is Android. And uh, globally, it's like eighty. To 83 percent android and then yeah the i had the same iPhone. conversation with porsche but, and i lost yeah but at, at any rate <laughs> infinity does support both um okay. but you know the, their infotainment system is a little odd because it's got that split two screen layout yeah so you have the upper t- two two separate touch screens the one above is for the media stuff and then down below is for climate controls and and other control you know settings and things like that and you know it just it looks a little confused and not particularly well thought out. I mean, it works okay, um, but it's you know it it does look a little peculiar, and especially now in an era where we're starting to see these big, massive you know single screen layouts, um, you know I think that I'm I'm guessing that the next generation of Infinities hopefully won't follow this path, but you know the I think you know the QX50 is a, a really nice midsize crossover. Um, you know, especially I think, you know, in the, you know, in the middle trim levels, you know, where you're still going to get a decent combination of, uh, of equipment, um, at a much more reasonable price point. I think 60 is probably on the, a little high for what you're getting with this one. Uh, but even, you know, in the Lux trim level, you're still getting their pro pilot assist, which while certainly not as capable as, as many others, you know, it it does a, a, a decent job of, uh, helping keep you uh, centered in the lane and the adaptive does it, cruise. But does it? It's a little aggressive. On, on, on the highway, it does, yeah. Mm. Uh, it's, <laughs> Alex, I feel like you have feelings about this. It's it's <laughs> not, you know, it, it's it's a hands-on system. So, you know, it's it's it really is just assisting you, you know. This, this is one of the things that's annoyed me about Nissan that I've complained about in the past, especially outside of the U.S. They refer to it as more of an autonomous system which it absolutely most certainly is not. I, I remember a few years ago, Carlos Ghosn speaking at CES and then a couple of days later at the Detroit Auto Show, you know, referring to ProPilot when they were first launching it as, an, you know, their first autonomous system. And I went to Brian Brockman, who's now head of comms for Nissan North America, and tell him, hey, Brian, you got to get him to stop with this autonomous stuff. This is not 
at all autonomous. And but by the time they actually launched the system here in the U.S., they rebadged it. Overseas, it is just called ProPilot. Here, it's ProPilot Assist, and they make it very clear that this is a driver assist system. Um, but the you know the, the the adaptive cruise works fine on there. Um, so you know that's that's the QX50 Infinity. My beef with all uh, almost all these systems, except like Cadillac and upcoming uh, super. Uh, F-150, you know, C machines enabled uh, assistance system is that no matter what these systems do, the um, interface, I guess the interface with a driver is like a multi-stage button engagement system Mm -hmm. with a very small little light up icons in the dash. So to engage them is difficult. The, your, the driver's awareness of the system's state is very poor. And this is pretty, this is true of pretty much everybody. Uh, except Cadillac with that beautiful steering wheel with the light up bar on the top. Well, I, I that's give, beautiful. I will give Nissan Infinity, Infinity some credit there. You know, there is the big the blue button on the um, on the steering wheel. You know, it and it's pretty distinct from everything else on the that. steering wheel. Uh, so you've got you know blue. It's got you know like an overhead view icon of a car surrounded by some blue circles, and it's it's pretty clear that this is something different. You hit that. You know, and then on the cluster, you know, it shows you when that's engaged. Um, so yes, it's it's that certainly not it's certainly not as good as as what Super Cruise does, but I think it's better than most. Uh, it's, that's it's a really clear. good point, though, Alex, is because uh, I I find myself doing this. I'm just thinking about when I get in media cars. You know, sometimes they have the lane keeping on, and that's really aggressive, and I want to try it without it. And I there's like four buttons sometimes for, for each different feature and they're not in the same place. And it's hard to figure out like, how do I turn that thing off <laughs> or yeah. on e- yeah. either way? It's bad, bad user experience design. I feel like, I think it's GM that has like a, a two stage process to activate uh, adaptive cruise control. Like it's like, and it was, I remember it was very confusing because it was like, I just want it activated. And if I don't want it, then that, that should oh, right. be the effort, not not right. like, like you get you get regular cruise first and then adaptive or something yeah. like that. Yeah, right. Which I thought, you know, just I didn't because because then, of course, I think I'm thinking that it's adaptive and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm on that guy's <laughs> tail. <Yeah. laughs> yep. Oh, I I heard some from a fellow auto writer. I heard uh, some stories about using dynamic cruise in the wrong place at the wrong time and <laughs> doing exactly that, running a brand new car into the back of the, back of the trailer. Which well, and Lucy, like, Lucy has a lot to say about that too. Well, while, while we're, while we're on the topic of, you know, user interface design into vehicles, uh, earlier this week, Tesla had their, their Q4 earnings call <laughs> and, they announced a refresh of the Model S and the Model X. Uh, as a Tesla driver, Alex, tell us, what did you think of this new steering mechanism that they have? In You're there? referring to the uh, aircraft style yoke, like the I, Boeing style aviation. Yeah. Yoke. Yes, I believe in their. Yes, we are. <laughs> a butterfly steering wheel. Um, so, uh, obviously, the the. Most famous example of this is the Knight Rider steering wheel, which was also like that. Um, there's a fun uh, article in Road and Track uh, 
where uh, they embed a video of Mr. Regular from Regular Car Reviews who goes and drives one of these Knight Rider replicas. The problem with that car, the two, with the Knight Rider car, twofold. The yoke is so wide that when you turn it, it gets into your legs. And it's very <laughs> difficult to take turns because the steering ratio is unchanged on the Knight Rider vehicles. <laughs> so you have to turn this thing around multiple times and it's really bad. It's tough. So um, if it seems to me, and we don't yet know, that if Tesla has increased the steering ratio such that you don't need to turn the wheel more than, say, 80 degrees, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe. Thanks. And also, the steering wheel does not appear that wide. So from that standpoint, I think that problem is they've solved the Knight Rider problem. Um, I don't know if that's the case. And it might take some getting used to. But, you know, back in the... In 71, when the uh, or late 60s, and Citroen introduced a system called the Diravi system, which, it, which I owned, uh, which was installed on my Citroen SM, which was a 73. And um, that system had uh, the lowest, well, it had a variable steering ratio. At different speeds, the ratio changed, and it was a, it was a you know, um, uh, hydro, what, what is hydronomatic system? So at high speeds, it required greater force to turn the wheel, and um, you also, and it was very difficult to turn the car. At low speeds, you could take one finger and rotate the, <laughs> rotate the wheel like you know three x. Um, as a result, I crashed the car in a, in a garage uh, in like <laughs> the third day. I owned the car, and that was very expensive. Um, and, this, and the manual for that car stated that the Zeravi system is the most advanced and safest such system, and it should require no less than 50 hours of driving time to familiarize a user <laughs> with the system. <laughs> so, what is, so I imagine for this thing to work, what could go uh, wrong in 50 hours? Yeah, <laughs> a lot. I crashed a car two times. Right, three days. It doesn't strike me as so, 50 hours. So the Tesla steering wheel. So I imagine uh, – so Tesla is interesting because what they do is they introduce some functionality which seems wildly different and crazy, and then they have a setting to turn it on or off. So the regenerative braking in the car, it, the standards – the default setting is high regen – um, one pedal steer, uh, one pedal th uh, throttle, and then I almost ever use the brake pedal in that car. And but you can set it to uh, low regen, and it feels more like a, like an internal combustion car without a regen system. I imagine that for this to work at all, the default setting is going to have to be a, a since it's drive by wire, a setting that allows you to do all your steering with no more than say seventy degrees of input. Um, and the Tesla fan base is going to claim to love it, whether they do or they don't. They're going to claim to love it. And they're just going to get used to it. And then new buyers will just get used to it or they could turn it off, but they're going to want to leave it on. Um, it's a very muskian thing to do. And I can't, I can't lie. I think it might work because I know that in my driving in the Tesla, I have my seat position settings. And I always hold the wheel three and nine and I hook my, my hands in like this. I do most of my driving without moving my arms more than a little bit, most of it. Um, and um, the only exception is parallel parking, which brings us to the second phase of the nonsense of this design, which might actually be stupid, is that they, 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 Musk says they're not going to have turn wheel stocks, turning stocks, or any yeah, turn uh, or um, a gear selector. This is stupid, and it can't possibly work because there are too many ca cases where you're you will need you need 
to signal something, but you're not making a lane change or a turn. It, it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, though, do, is that like just him speaking nonsense off the cuff where you're like, oh, come on. What he's doing. The, the images they released, there's no, there's, no, there's no stocks. Here's right, what he's right. doing. The, the logic of what he's saying is predicated on convincing people that full self-driving level four or five is imminent. And it's going to coincide within a few months or a year of the arrival of this new UI. And that's nonsense. That's absolutely yeah. nonsense. The majority, even if full self-driving worked anywhere, and if they can't make it work at Tesla supercharger parking lots, it doesn't work. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, the majority of buyers of this car who may be foolish enough to spend $10,000 on the functionality are not going to live places where full self-driving works or w- w- allows you to, to be truly driverless. So you're going to need stocks. You need a gear selector. And the notion that the system, which cannot drive itself, currently will know whether or not to signal or change gears is also absurd. Um, well, and especially Alex, I mean, we're, so we're almost an hour into recording and just remind our listeners what you do is your day job again. Well, I, I work for an autonomous vehicle developer, Argo AI, um, and Argo feels, uh, Brian Seleski, my friend who co-hosts the No Parking Podcast with me, that clarity of language and honesty is, is important. So He's you know, right. that's... Yeah, so you're... <laughs> I mean, you're not, you're a Tesla owner. I'm a Tesla owner. I love the car. But you're much more qualified than the average person to speak about where we are when it comes to autonomous driving and, and looking at that kind of development. And so it's really, it's, I love getting your perspective on this because it's, you have an inside track on really what we're looking at. Well, um, let me say uh, that, probably the most important conversation to have around all of the Thomas vehicles and is around clarity of language and what things really mean. I'm, you know, I'm working on a column now that's going to run on ground truth about how everything we own, doesn't matter what it is, has a geofence. Your sneak, your shoes have a geofence. They do. Everything in the world's ever been invented to, to serve a purpose has a fence. Um, a pen, it's pen's fence is when it touches paper. <laughs> like uh, your sneakers function uh, running they don't work on the beach snowshoes don't work for swimming uh flippers fences in the water everything is a fence the purpose of the fence is for people to know when and where things are supposed to work by design <laughs> and inside a fence you can have some, uh, you can have a, a a smaller area in which things work perfectly <laughs> and then there are things where things work place where things work suboptimally so uh, the notion that i mean what is the why do we want autonomous vehicles at all what we really want is we just don't want to if you don't want to drive you don't want to be in this, then being in the driver's seat defeats the purpose you know right. it, it doesn't make any sense so we're, we're playing games of language here which make no sense so if you want if a vehicle is capable of driving itself anywhere you might likely go you can take out the stocks and turn signal indicators and and uh what's it called the uh gear selector because you can just tell it you just tell it what to do you can sit in the back but well, we started this conversation <laughs> with we're talking about magic carpet rides right yeah and so I mean, apparently that's what we've we migrated to mind reading now yeah it was what we, i mean <laughs> so like you know something that's just it's it's fun to talk about it's a fun joke to make um and if you said if if you, if one said that a vehicle's f- geo uh, the full self-driving geofence was parking lots where uh superchargers exist and they only function there then you don't you don't need stocks or anything i mean you just don't it, this is all pointless it's pointless to just to to talk about it because it makes no sense you need stocks 
and you need a gear shift uh, uh, selector. I, I think actually like you're federally mandated to have them right now. I don't know if you do that. Well, um, <laughs> do that, that's still kind of an open question. Oh, really? Um, certainly, well, certainly for the, you know, the, the shift selector, you know, that it doesn't have to be a stock on the steering column, obviously. Um, you know, there has to be some right now, there has to be some kind of physical control uh for it you know i mean we have a lot of vehicles now that have push buttons or rotary controllers or you know all kinds of different interfaces for that the the turn signal stock uh again it's not entirely clear that it necessarily has to be a stock um you know it's a it's a stock by convention you know, i mean we've you know since the 1940s you know we've basically settled on a basic layout of controls you know of the accelerator pedals on the right Brake pedals next to it, to the left of it, clutch on the far left if you have one, um, you know, turn signal stock, you know, on the on the steering column on the, the left hand side and, you know, maybe a transmission on the right or somewhere else that because it works. that's a convention, but it's not it, actually mandated anywhere. Yeah, for a second, if I may, the most the biggest reason you want to have a, at least one stock on a Tesla is because today set aside autopilots, which is a driver assistance system, set aside some issues that it has in terms of engagement of the system. It is the best on the market because if you want to engage uh, adaptive cruise in a Tesla, okay, you tap the stock down once it's the simplest system on the market for engagement of the system. And if you want to engage adaptive cruise, plus lane keeping, which is what autopilot is, you down twice. And no other manufacturer has, has, has simplified it to this level. And it is why the system ha enjoys such great loyalty and popularity among Tesla fans, even though the system has some flaws. And like running into the back of stationary fire trucks. <laughs> well, so, yeah, well that, that's a separate issue. That is not a UI issue. That has to do with, uh, with the functionality. The functionality. Of the system. But in terms of actual interface, it is the best interface there is for engagement and disengagement. Now, if you remove that stock, I'm not sure like what better method there is of engaging that system. Uh, maybe I've missed something here. Um, well, that's but, what I was going to get to is, you know, they actually do have controls for the turn signals and autopilot there. There's capacitive touch surfaces on the the yoke, the spokes of the yoke. Yeah. Does it work so, with gloves? Oh, wait, there's well, capacitive touch on. Uh, on on the left hand side and on the left hand spoke, the, there's uh, a couple of buttons for the turn signal. So there's a <laughs> capacitive touch surface there. And then I think autopilot's on the right hand stock. Let me tell you a story about capacitive right touch. Uh, there's okay, a capacitive we... way to clarify for me here. I was under the impression there's no capacitive touch on the Tesla wheel. The, on the new one, on this yoke, there is. Oh, well, they know, I, I stand totally corrected for a second time. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, so there is, there is a control there. You know, oh, it's designed to, uh, to activate automatically to guess what you want to do. But there, there is a control there. And there's also... Uh, manual control for the uh, transmission select, but it's in the, the center touchscreen. I hate, I hate that. Which well, is well, I, stupid. Okay. So, so again, let me tell you a story about capacitive touch. Our dishwasher has capacitive touch for controls all across the top. And um, you brush it with your ankle when you're unloading it and you just, like select all kinds of stuff. So when you close <laughs> it, it just starts running and you, you have to remember to cancel it all. That's what's going to happen if you have capacitive touch on the spokes of that. that <laughs> you know, like, people are just going to hit stuff by mistake now. Mm -hmm. Like, without intent you know 
I we can go down an entire I, UI I'm not, rabbit I'm not hole. arguing that this yeah. is a good idea. I, no, I think it's, it's a ridiculous idea. It uh, sounds to me like I came to this episode with the wrong attitude completely. And I, I think that they're full on going to get rid of those stocks. <laughs> I don't know that it's – no, Alex, I don't think it's necessarily wow, I'm wrong totally wrong <laughs> attitude. I think that um, what we – what I want to see – I don't mind if they get rid of the stocks. I do like that we've got a convention that's 60, 70 years old now that everybody expects. I think there's a safety aspect to that that is important. But if you're going to break the convention and and make a change, I, I feel like it needs to be an improvement. And I don't know that we're we're there yet. I you know if, if you want to get rid of the stocks, come up with a way other than saying the car is going to guess what you want. Because uh, it, it'll do okay like maybe 70% of the time, and then that other 30% is where bad things are going to happen. Uh, so if you're going to innovate, innovate. Don't just change for the sake of change, although it's been a masterful way of controlling the, the sort of the hype cycle. So I guess when your job is to attract, uh, you know, attract investment and uh, continue to deliver shareholder value, um, I can't fault that. But Sounds to me I, like... I, you're- Go ahead, Rebecca. So I think of the Mercedes gear shifter stock, which I find very hard to get used to every single time that I try and because it's on the right side and it's where like the blinkers are and it's where, you know, or or the windshield wipers or something. And so there have been changes made to that setup. The idea of having the blinkers on the yoke, you know, the indicators. First of all, I, I just want to make sure that I can control it because I I do not expect a car to guess what I'm thinking, you know, or what my next move is going to be, especially in more rural areas where we, you know, in Boston, you're driving on paved horse paths. You know, you're not driving on a nice grid. Well, try the and, uh, circling the arch of tri- arc of triumph. Like you're not, you, uh, right? You need I mean, a manual. Like, forget that, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, I think, um, but to Dan's point, I appreciate that. Yes, you have to innovate, and it needs to be in some kind of benefit, whether it's more convenient, easier to use, safer, all those things. What throws me off, uh, it probably more or equally is the idea that, you know, so many people still don't put their hands on the right place on a steering wheel at that three and nine. And, and you're right. Like you're right, Alex, like you can, you know, I try and drive my entire drive. I had to go out to long Island, probably about a 70 mile drive. And it dawned on me. I thought, you know, for the most part, I didn't move my hands the whole time. It was really, really comfortable. And but most people, you know, are still gripping 10 and two, like it's their life depends upon it. So <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how people adapt. If anybody's going to adapt, though, it is the early adopter innovators that tend to buy Teslas. So we'll see what happens. Sam, next time you, you come into an episode, if you've got critical information, please share it up front. <laughs> Welcome to our world. Where did you see the capacitor tension news about that wheel? I mean, I read a bunch of articles. I didn't see that. Uh, uh, there, there's, um, I think, uh, Roadshow had it. There was a bunch of places that, a bunch of articles that had it. I'll find, I'll find something to send it was to you. Was that an official Tesla news, the capacitor touch component? I think it was, I think it might have been in that report or, or somewhere. I'll, I'll find it for you. But um, yeah, it's, and I think, I think the question was asked as well during the conference call, during the earnings call. Uh, you know, 
when when after Elon announced this and revealed this, you know, I think somebody might have asked about that. But um, yeah, so the the capacitive surfaces are there. I, I agree. I think it should be physical controls. You know, and I think a stock works really well. You know, I think I think part of the reason why they're doing this is you know it's cheaper not to engineer those stocks. You know, there's fewer parts that they have to assemble and you know, that cuts their cost, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't make the driving experience better. My, my foot, my, I guess, epilogue to to this is that I've had a few uh, screen failures on my boat. I have two Teslas. I've had several screen failures uh, where, and I had to drive the car with no screen. And so if that thing, if I had not had a physical stock to change um, gears, I wasn't, I would not have been going anywhere. And that would have been a big problem. So, um, so, you know, like, let's talk about the rest of the upgrades though. Um, you know, for me looking at it, uh, it amounts to about half of what you'd see in a normal mid cycle refresh, uh, where automakers can take the opportunity to streamline assemblies, you know, get cost out, uh, provide a new look and materials and the same basic bones. Uh, so the S and X, uh, the upgrades don't seem as dramatic as refreshes go on the exterior, and they're kind of four years behind when you you might expect. So it seems a little late for for an innovator um, like Tesla. Although I think they've they've sort of flipped it as well. Um, I will use an example or an analogy. Uh, like it, it's like a candy bar, right? Like the packaging is as important as the Snickers bar inside. The Snickers bar is the part that's consistent. It's been consistent for however long you know what it's going to be. Uh, but the packaging changes. This is sort of different where, you know, a 2012 Model S is going to feel a lot different to drive and operate than a, a brand new Model S. Uh, at least I, I think, I imagine. Um, maybe I'm Build wise, it's going to be a lot better. That's for sure. <laughs> you get into a five-year-old Model S and it, it just, it's... It falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, the interesting stuff in Tesla's is, is under the skin. You know, the engineering is very clever. It's very, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff to geek out about in there. Um, so I don't know if it's good or bad that they've kept the wrapper kind of similar. I, the, the analogy does fall apart to a certain degree. Um, because Tesla is what it is. And by being so recognizable, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, they, they are going to have to take a really big leap the next time they restart, you know, when there's a fully new Model S, it's going to have to be a, a big change. Um, so the, the incremental change here with the interior, I think, you know, the, the screens, what do you think of the, the they've gone away from portrait to, to uh, landscape? I think uh, the Model S is a beautiful car. I think it's dated really well. I think it absolutely can go another five or seven years. I really do. And, you know, they, it seems superficial, but the switch from chrome to black trim, if you look at this car, um, on the, I'm looking at the configurator right now, it feels fresh. It's beautiful. The interior is it's radically different um, than anything else. They had to go to port uh, landscape mode because you can't, if you want to watch a movie, if you have... T- Two, four models. The more expensive models have to match or surpass experience in the cheaper ones. And in the Model 3, when you're charging, you watch Netflix or video, you got this beautiful, big, wide 
portrait uh, landscape mode. And so the SNX needed to match or match that. And I think the screen's a little bit bigger. Is it bigger in the SNX? Um, it looks great. That's, actually. Yeah. It's not clear if it's uh, what size it is. I don't think they actually yeah. said what size it is, whether it's a 15 or 17. It actually looks like it's a 15, like the uh, three and the Y. Yeah, it, It's good. I mean, actually the, uh, in, the one, the two things that have gone unspoken in the refresh is that your luxury models have a traditional instrument cluster binnacle over the steering wheel and your cheaper ones don't. So that's basically an admission that luxury buyers expect demand and deserve um, that secondary display, which is in fact, sorry, Tesla fans safer. Um, it's safer to have your eye gaze track down for a millisecond to check your speed than it is to track right and down. So uh, I'm glad. And it's also safer for anyone who is really obsessed with their Tesla. If, you're, if you must look at the situational awareness display to see what your car sees, um, you know, the, which is the lane lines and other vehicles, it's a lot safer to be <laughs> glancing down straight down rather than down to the right. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing, and I would be dying to know, mate, our little, our, our expert Sam might know is does, does the SNX refresh include a cabin facing camera because the Y and three do. Uh, we don't know it's, because that's the big, yeah. that's the, that would be the big admission um, by Tesla that some form of driver monitoring is coming and has to come because your NCAP standards for DMS systems will require, if you want a five-star safety rating in Europe, you're going to have to have a cabin, a driver monitoring system. It's got to be camera based. So, well, uh, except that, um, you know, the, the three and the Y only use an RGB camera. They don't use an infrared camera, which means that if you're wearing sunglasses um, or, you know, at, even at night, you know, sometimes it's going to have trouble actually detecting, but certainly if you're wearing sunglasses. Now whereas, you're assuming, you're assuming, of course, that the systems will be required to do gaze tracking as opposed to just um, head pose. That's, and hand that's position. true. Yeah. So. Um, but I, I think for, hmm, I mean, almost every other manufacturer is going with an infrared camera system. Uh, I, 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 I suspect standard. that this is why you're the three of you doing real journalism and comparing these systems in the future is going to become an important aspect of measuring actual safety or whether or not there is a safety improvement, having a camera based DMS present because systems that do proper, as you point out, gaze tracking and can see through glasses are going to be safer um, or they'll be capable of being safer uh, because the other half of the equation is what the system does once notified of mm -hmm. a suboptimal gaze. Um, but that's a whole other episode. Yeah, I mean, does it so, rumble your seat like the yeah. Cadillac does or, yeah. you know, just shake the steering wheel or give you a yes. little beep? So all these Tesla fans claiming that DMS is stupid um, are going to have to eat crow <laughs> once, uh, once Tesla activates, presumably, the cabin-facing camera that is in the SNX because your luxury model can't be less safe than your cheaper model. It can't be lacking some critical safety feature. It'll also be interesting to see how well these systems learn, you know, like, because I was like that stupid coffee cup that can show up in like, I've been driving for 10 minutes if I'm doing something really aggressive, but safe, you know, I, on a, a quiet road or something. And so it needs to be able to learn. Cause if you see that coffee cup or whatever signal, if you get that repetitively, you're just going to ignore it. You're going to try and turn it off. It's not going to mean anything. You know, and so there needs to be some kind of uh, 
a, a learning aspect to it as well to say, hey, you know what, this person lives in a particular environment where this is how they drive or this is how they operate the vehicle. And I don't know how it judges safety or whatever, but it'll just be interesting to see how that happens. So there is an interesting thing about DMS, camera-based DMS, is that some companies have uh, large and growing databases of human behavior, human factors research, and some is, some research is more than others. Uh, and so what you have is, depending on the type of system, I'm not going to break down the companies because I'm not even fully familiar with how what all the different approaches are, but there is one approach is to create a fixed set of rules of behavior. So a person's head moves this far this way, they must not be paying attention. Um, mm. If the person's hand moves here, they must be distracted towards something. Um, that That is one way to do it. Um, but there are systems um, being prototyped today that uh, create an individualized baseline. So the user of the system, their inputs are X, the outputs are Y, this is what the environment looks like, and they just happen to hold their head this way. That's just how they drive. They yeah. just happen to look over here. They, and because everyone, there's physical behavior is a little bit different. And so a creating a baseline per user and integrating that with their inputs and what the car sees and what actually, and the outcomes over time, um, that is, I think that's going to be the future of really great driver monitoring systems. Yeah, I think and, so and actually, uh, that's something that uh, Genesis, the G80 and the GV80 um, are starting to do. Um, you know, if, if you look in the specs, one of the things they t mentioned in there, and actually Hyundai announced this uh, about a year and a half ago, was this idea of adding machine learning into the adaptive cruise control uh, system. Um, and what they're actually doing is it, it's trying to learn that, learn each driver's behavior. You know, so uh, for a particular driver, you know, if they are consistently, you know, accelerating up, you know, trying to get a little bit closer or, you know, trying to, you know, or backing off, you know, for, for cut-ins and things like that, they're looking for the, 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 what the driver is doing and trying to replicate that with the automatic control. So using a, a machine learning algorithm and making adjustments to the, the default control based on what that driver's expe expectation is, essentially trying to do what, what Brian talks about all the time with naturalistic driving behavior, but tuning it to the individual driver as opposed to tuning you know, your, your automated driving system to the behavior around um, you know, or, or in a particular area where you're driving. I mean, so, that's pretty great for an owner to, to step out of the car and be like, wow, I think drives like me. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally. But, but you know, to, wow. to your point, Alex, you know, that, you know, that idea of trying to better learn the driver's behavior and, and, you know, in simple, you know, or, you know, in some, in fairly rudimentary ways, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, we, that these systems have been trying to do for a long time. Uh, you know, the early driver monitor systems, you know, the coffee cup systems, you know, one of the things I remember when Ford first launched theirs, I think the Mercedes system that launched before that was similar, you know, is it looks for a, a pattern of steering input behavior um, and, you know, using using a fairly basic PID controller system. Uh, uh, I'm not going to get into the details of that, but basically you know, using some calculus to figure out, okay, what, what is, what is typical for this driver? 
And, you know, then when it sees a deviation from that, that's when it triggers and says, okay, this, there's, this might be something that uh, we need to alert the driver about. All right. right. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, this is why I, why I love this show. I love a show where I learn something by coming <laughs> on. Thank you. Now, now that we've talked automated driving to death, um, before we get to a, a listener question, uh, I would like to uh, touch on some news that came out of the UK this week from a company that is completely the opposite of this, which is Lotus. Uh, <laughs> Lotus Lotus announced that this year they will be ceasing production of the Elise, the Exige, and the Evora. Uh, the the Elise is now you know twenty five years since it launched, um, and uh, uh, sometime later this year they're going to launch their, their new sports car, the Type One Thirty One, which uh, apparently will be their last ever internal combustion vehicle. After that, it's you know they're also launching the Avaya this year. Um, but you know, that, that after the, whatever this type 131 is, it's going to be all electric. So I love the title of, of this release though, a new year and a new future, new Lotus sports car series confirmed Elise Aziz, is that how you say Exige. it? Aziz. Exige. And Evora embark on a final year of production. Like they make it so positive as opposed to saying we're canceling all this crap and moving on. <laughs> like like the, the positive spin on this is fabulous. So kudos to that headline writer. Well, you know, Morgan just announced the end of of three wheeler production. Really? Oh. <laughs> and with, but but again, a but one more year of a special edition can be yours. Are you going to get one? <laughs> Sorry. Do you still have your Morgan? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. Let's uh, talk. I love that car. I mean, I'll do anything to keep these companies in business. <laughs> Except buy another one. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did your part. You That's bought awesome. one. Now it's actually, up to somebody else. Actually, I've, I've owned three Morgan three wheelers in 10 years. Don't ask me why. <laughs> um, the first two were problematic. Um, but this one is as perfect as an 11,000 mile nine year old car can be. <laughs> but we're here to talk miles. about Lotus. Yeah. yeah. Well, so um, I was pleased to see that they're, they've apparently figured out the whole Brexit thing and they're adding jobs, which is good because that was 250 jobs. Yeah. Yeah. That was an industry, uh, uncertainty about what they're going to do. And we've seen because they've now finalized things there, there's some jobs. I think Nissan as well as moving some jobs into their UK operations that they, they were going to previously source elsewhere. You know, the, the, the batteries or motors, I forget exactly what it is. So, Maybe this is the same kind of thing where some of those moves, some of these moves are predicated by their their trade situation, um, but also the Exige, the Evora, and the Elise were were old, so they were due for a refresh anyway. Do we know if the Type One Thirty One is going to be similar to the Lotuses that we know and love, or are they going to be significantly different? Well, have you seen a picture of them? No, it's, I haven't. It looks like more of the same. It looks like a, a slight. It looks like a refreshed Evora. Um, uh, so I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I love it, but I do love that Lotus exists. Have y'all have y'all driven one of these? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, my my uh, engineering career when I, after I graduated, my first job out of school 
I went to work for what was then Delco Moraine NDH. You know, it was part of GM working on ABS. My first assignment was working on ABS for the M100 Elan <laughs> and, and also supporting the uh, Esprit X180R race program. So I dove into the deep end with Lotus. I, I mean, even even when I was still in school before, you know, long before I got that job, you know, I was always a fan of Lotus. You know, I was a fan of Colin Chapman and it, you know, his his willingness to take chances, you know, take a flyer on wild ideas, um, you know, like the, you know, some of the uh, some of the Formula One cars, some of the, you know, some of the race cars and just that whole ethos of, you know, simplicate and add lightness, you know, to take Take com- take complexity out of the car, make it lighter. You know, um, and sometimes you went a little too far. You know, like you know the the whole you know probably um, uh, apocryphal story of you know having you know having a Formula One race car, a tube frame race car. You know, keep taking tubes out of the structure until it collapses, and then add that last one back. <laughs> you know, uh, you know uh, have you looked at the uh, what is it the big one the Evija, the Avaya. The Avaya, like yeah. this thing is really cool. I mean, you think you've, I mean, it, I, I'm always rooting for Lotus because unlike, and I love Koenigseggs and Pagani's and all these other things, but, uh, but they do strip these things down to the core driver's car. And they're, they're really cool. And, they, and I, I've driven a, uh, an Elise, an older one, and it's really great. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah, really I, I, I did a review of the Exige uh, 260R. Uh, back in 2009, I think for for Autoblog, and I was I was lucky in that that early time at at Delco. Um, I actually got to spend some time with Roger Becker, um, and you know, in just a few hours in the car with Roger, I learned more about vehicle dynamics than I think I did in in five years of engineering education. Um, and you know, it was always always a blast um, getting to to work on those cars. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you see this uh, Ivaya in person, it, it's much smaller than you think. Mm-hmm. And the person who buys a Lotus is always someone I'd like to meet. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't say that for a lot of other supercars. I, I, I was actually seriously tempted earlier this week. Um, there was uh, an M100 Elan on Bring a Trailer, um, about 100,000 miles on it. And, uh, it was at the time the bid was like $8,600. Um, and have you ever driven in uh, one of those Elans? No, <laughs> they are actually, actually shockingly good to drive. I mean, despite being a front wheel drive car, it's actually, am- it's got an amazing chassis in it. You know, and, uh, somebody on, on Twitter was, um, you know, wondering, was speculating, Gee, would a Type R engine fit in that thing? And uh, that would actually that would be really interesting to put a Type R engine. Although the 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 big probably the biggest weakness, biggest mechanical weakness of of those Elans was the uh, cooling system. Um, they you know if they were left sitting idling for too long, they did have a tendency to overheat, especially in that sounds hot, like in summer days. But all Anna Morgan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, Lotus it is two separate designed for English weather. They're not really two separate companies, but <laughs> Lotus, like Lotus engineering and Lotus, the automaker, they, they go forward doing different things. Um, do you anticipate there's a day where, where Lotus is, is no longer making automobiles or do they fully embrace 
uh, EVs and like a driver's EV that doesn't have lots of screens and doesn't have uh, lots of the tech that EVs are typically sold with now. They're premium in a different way. They're they're premium for you get less of of uh, what you typically get in more of a driver's car still, just with EV propulsion. What's maybe the future looking like for Lotus? I hope that's the direction to go. That would be kind of cool. I, I was dreaming. Yeah. I, I predict Lotus will, as a brand, will survive um, f- forever. Well, spe- I mean, now they're owned by Geely now, so you know. Uh, so, I, I believe that OEMs will bifurcate into the the the, the pieces that manufacture autonomous pods, and then. <laughs> And I'll just take, um, I'm trying to get an example. You can take Ford like, or GM. Like, what are the brands, what are the models they make that have to live for the brand to matter? Mustang, mm-hmm. uh, Corvette. They have to, it doesn't matter if they sell one or a gazillion F-150. There's a brand there. Uh, and Jeep, like a Jeep has to, is, that's an important brand. And so uh, once you get to skateboard powertrain ubiquity, um, you're going to see, you're going to see uh, every manufacturer make pods, and then they're going to make their valuable their their Halo brand vehicle on that skateboard, and then they're going to have to like quintuple down on design around it. Uh, my theory of I wrote a column about this that was satirical years ago, but it's becoming true. Uh, my review of the 2036 Porsche 911, which I wrote five years ago, <laughs> it, people still come back to me from OEM saying how much they love it. Cause one of the ideas was that on board the vehicle, you could, you'd have a database of every Porsche 911 ever made on board with the sound, um, the gear ratios and like the handling balance and that you could then just select the year and the package. And then you'd have a virtual manual transmission that would replicate the ratios, uh, you know, and the changes and the car would just match up, the performance would match up with your selection. You could drive a simulator. It, it would you're basically you're a driving a real world simulator of every Porsche ever made, and the way to replicate the handling balance, uh, you could actually physically replicate some of the handling balance by having like a piece of the like a section of the battery would be like on a rail, which could move forward or rear <laughs> in the vehicle to further <laughs> to further replicate the the old the good old days, and beyond that. Because you would have modeled the you know grip and you know the physics of the car perfectly, you'd have your extended safety envelope. The car would not allow you to crash; it just would not. And that so, sounds very uh, like appealing uh, to me. You've seen that kind of thing happen. I know you're you're big on the audio side. So for decades now, for like twenty years, uh, audio companies have been emulating the sound of gear from the 50s and 60s and 70s. So you can buy plugins that go into your digital audio workstation that supposedly sound like hardware from the 60s. And it's gotten better and better and better, especially with the convolution emulation technology and stuff. And this is audio only, but that's not a terrible idea. It's not. Say, well, they, they do, do the same thing in photography too. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, I've, I've got, you know, apps that can take, my digital photo from my my Canon DSLR and make it l- look like Kodachrome or yeah. Ektachrome yeah. or Ilford HP uh, yep. film, you know, or or anything else, you know. So this this re- you know this replicating old analog technology is is a interesting idea. I don't 
don't know how appealing it's actually here's the thing i don't think anyone's i don't know how many people are going to do it but it's going to be a selling point at the end of the day people want they want brand they want authenticity they want to know that they can go to a dealership and pay extra to be told that a guy in England had his hands on this thing. <laughs> and, well, and, and that thing could have a skateboard. It doesn't matter what it has, but that thing is different from the thing that the guy in France touched. <laughs> and that's what people pay for. It doesn't matter if it's food or perfume or whatever, or a car, and that there was a human being who made a decision. Um, I'm here for the, the explosion of design and brand and personality. I'm, I'm down. Let's go. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's uh, a listener question here from Tristan Ollie. Uh, says he's a big fan of the podcast. He lives near Boston, so it would, it's always fun to hear about Dan and Rebecca's New England adventures. Uh, <laughs> has a multi-part question for you about connectivity in newer vehicles. Oh boy! Uh, it seems like more and more cars are relying on built-in connectivity to power different features of the vehicle. Tesla has done it for a while; it's uh, over eight years now since the Model S. Um, the new Mach-E, and now all cars that will be based on Android Automotive. If you're buying any of these vehicles, once they are five years old or past the complementary length of included internet service, how much will it cost per month for the internet connection? Uh, As someone who really does not want another monthly bill, how much functionality will you lose if you don't subscribe to that data? Uh, Are future cars going to need an internet connection to function? Related to that, have automakers talked about uh, their plans for long-term support of these platforms? Android phones are notorious for being bad about getting updates once they're more than two years old. What's a 15-year-old car with Android Automotive going to be like? Are updates going to be pushed out by Google or Volvo? What feature? What worries me is that a lot of these features, these cars have now, just won't work down the road. Um Netflix and Hulu no longer work on a lot of older smart TVs because they've not been updated and can't support the newer versions of the services. Annoying with the TV, but more concerning when it comes to a car. That's that's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) So let me answer one part of this first, which is, um, yes, some of these features, once you reach the end of that complimentary connectivity service, uh, you will have to pay um, to continue using those features. Super Cruise being one of those. That's one of the first that we've seen. Uh, GM gives you three years of OnStar service uh, with the purchase of the car. After that, if you don't sign up for a $25 a month OnStar plan, Super Cruise will stop working because it can no longer get map updates. So that's, you know, that is a, a serious problem. And this is something that manufacturers are going to have to address is how they, how they pay for this stuff. Cause I mean, it costs money to, to do the, you know, to, to develop these updates and validate them, you know, test them and validate them. So Alex, well, as the owner of a model three, what do you, well, think? uh, you do, do you have, have the, do you have the premium connectivity package on your car? I do. Uh, I do have it. It's, I, I forget what it costs. It's fairly inexpensive. Um, uh, you know, I'm going to say, when you buy an, uh, an Apple, you get base, you do get OS updates. They happen because st- system stability, you know, and security over time requires these updates. So there has to be some, um, at, the very, at the very least, code maintenance um, for these systems. I mean, I guess there's a lot, there is a lot to unpack here. I would like to see manufacturers i hope they do what i think is the right thing which is as the state of the art changes uh, if a software update is possible they uh 
if it's a safety related thing, I would, I would hope that they would just update it. Um, if it's convenience, then people probably should pay for it because luxury and safety, two different things. Safety should never be a luxury. It should be table stakes. So that's, yeah, it's a personal opinion. It's a personal opinion. No, I, I totally understand what Tristan's talking about. I, the idea of yet another bill, um, especially for something that is integral to the car. Alex is right. There is a difference between safety and just uh, convenience features or something. So I, I think it is something that we have to figure out as an industry. I had a, an interesting experience that I will not elaborate on too much, but when I had the Ford Mustang Mach-E this week and actually had a lot of issues with the infotainment system, I had the privilege and luxury of talking directly to senior people at Ford Engineering about it. And we had a conference call on it. And we think that it was actually related to the version of the Android Auto that my, I'm sorry, Android phone that I'm using, which is two and a half years old, and the Android Automotive, which is different, the, the, the programming, uh, which is different than using Android Auto. But the basically the maps wouldn't work. I couldn't get any navigation to work and the car was, I just got frozen screens. It worked 20, about 12 hours after when the car kind of reset itself um, and I, and then I didn't have any issues for that day. But so to Tristan's question, yeah, I think, it, and part of it was blamed on bad Wi-Fi signal, which I am notorious at my house, which is why I still have landlines. And um, because when I do radio interviews, I can't depend upon my Wi-Fi signal. Um, but it was just, it was an ongoing issue that happened for almost a good portion, good four or five hours of an afternoon with the car. So, you know, we have to figure out a way to fix these kinds of issues. Ford actually does have a, a way to provide feedback. Um, so if you don't have somebody like Jim Farley on speed dial saying, hey, I'm having problems with this, <laughs> you yeah, can Jim actually, uh, you know, you can provide feedback, uh, which they got immediately. And it was great because it was, you know, that specific VIN number, that particular car and and they said, you know, they had all the reports and, and the feedback screens in the Ford Sync system are actually very, very good. Uh, so you're able to pro provide some pretty specific feedback. I, the idea that the car is using Wi-Fi for things isn't, isn't terrible to me. The, I'm not thrilled with the extra monthly bill. It's going to depend on what that cost is, you know, because it's not like it's a <laughs> phone. So you need a limited feature set. Um, they're going to need to work with the provider to figure out what is that tier of service? What does it cost? Um, and there's going to come a point where the thing is obsolete. I, I mean, that's, that's a problem now where we've got such, you know, connected devices and, and like smart TVs is a great example. If the rest of the TV works, but, you can't use half of the functions or important things that you, especially if you bought a smart TV because it's a smart TV and now it, it doesn't work because the hardware is too old. You hate to throw away a thing that functions. It just, it's, it's no longer supported because of its hardware version. I don't know if there's hardware patches for cars that can continue to, to move that along. There's a repair culture in other parts of the world that we don't necessarily have here where things are more expensive 
and they keep them running longer. And uh, it, they they fix them when they break versus replace them. I think we're going to see more of that here as this stuff spreads out. And we rely on the features and we rely on the the actual connectivity to make the thing work for us in a, on a day-to-day basis. It's going to need to be figured out because cars are expensive, man. I can't be buying one every seven years. Like, it's just, it just doesn't work for me. Um, it's it's got to be viable. And, and, you know, to, um, to what uh, Tristan said, you know, mentioned, you know, and th- that idea of, you know, the smart TV, this is why, you know, in my house uh, we have, I have a Chromecast on each TV in the house because, you know, we have, I have a TV across the room from me here that is an, you know, a 10 year old TV that, actually has no smarts in it at all. You know, I've got, you know, a couple other ones upstairs that um, each one of them has a Chromecast on it. You know, it's a $35, $50 device. I can swap those out, which I think is, is nice, you know, because I've had other devices hooked up to these. I've had, I've got, you know, a couple of old Roku's uh, sitting on a shelf in the, in the workshop here that are too old, that no longer get software updates. Uh, You know, I've even got an older Chromecast that no longer gets software updates. So, um, I think one of the things that manufacturers need to do is they, they need to go down this path of making the cars upgradable, hardware upgradable for a reasonable cost. Um, you know, and this is something, you know, I remember seeing a couple of years back, um, Qualcomm at, uh, at a show I was at was showing off um, a version, you know, showing off a, a system where the uh, Snapdragon um, chip that was powering the infotainment system in this car was on a module that could easily be unplugged, replaced with a newer one with a newer, a newer chip, you know, more power, more memory, whatever, um, and newer connectivity. And I think this is, and this is something I've written about several times over the years, this idea that we need to design cars for that upgradability, because, you know, if you've got a vehicle that can last 15, 20 years or more, it's not, it's not acceptable for, major functions to stop working after three or four years because it's not, you know, it either the software can't be updated or it's not being updated. We need to be able to keep that stuff going. Um, and I, I agree with Alex, you know, certain things like security fixes and, uh, you know, um, recalls and things like that, that has to be provided free of charge. There, that's not acceptable for, for those to, yeah. to be charged for, even if you're not subscribing, you should still be getting, you know, cybersecurity fixes and, and certain other types of fixes free of charge. Certain functions like Super Cruise or, you know, whatever other brand, you know, manufacturer has. Yeah, that, you know, that can require a subscription after a period of time. But I think the manufacturers need to be much clearer up front that, okay, you, you're getting this feature. You're going to have it for three years. And then after that, you're going to have to pay a subscription fee to continue using it. And I think that's acceptable as long as you're transparent about it from the time the person buys the yeah. car. If they buy the car expecting that function to work for the life of the car, like it, like you know, the air conditioning did or your power windows did uh, on your on your ten year old car. You know, what would be nice uh, is if manufacturers, for example, my Morgan um, would say, <laughs> "Hey, after three years, this thing is going to be." like a paperweight (laughs) and it has no electronics, the mechanical part. (laughs) That would be nice. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm curious, like this is one of the things that Tesla 
has gotten whacked for that I don't feel is necessarily fair where if it gets traded in, they'll reset it and the next owner can buy the features they want a la well, carte. Well, to be clear, to just to clarify, when you buy a te- when you get a Tesla, lease buy whatever. So autopilot functionality, so the, your driver assistance is baked in. That's part of the car, and uh, so and cybersecurity baked in, and so you will just get updates for that forever. Or and whoever buys the car will get updates to those things. Um, it's the uh, it's the uh, premium connectivity specific to um, and and full self driving. Uh, those are the things which you may lose if you transfer ownership. And presumably when they have a subscription program, you stop paying, you don't get those things. So the stuff that Tesla makes you pay for is not essential. Like it, like right. the premium connectivity is not essential to basic vehicle function. Right. And it, like you're going to annoy some people. BMW also got whacked where they started charging for, for CarPlay and they backed off of that. But again, neither of those things are essential. And so I feel like, they're they're gonna have to get over that hump of acceptance, and then it's just gonna be how things are. You the thing about CarPlay though is it should be baked in because it's it costs nothing to, to how, what does it cost to implement that? Uh, well, I don't know if there's a license fee they have to pay to Apple. Oh, yeah, I would okay. be shocked if there wasn't. Well, and um, some on some vehicles they don't have nav built in, and so right. then in some ways it is kind of essential. You know, if you want a navigation system that works. Right. well and safely as opposed to listening to your car or phone or looking down at your phone for ways or google maps or something so right. i think it depends on the vehicle this is exactly why most of the companies developing avs you know are focusing on fleet owned vehicles not on technology for individual consumers to buy because you know there's this understanding that you know these Unlike vehicles of the past, these vehicles are going to require updates throughout their life cycle, and that does cost money. And the challenge of you know how to how you get consumers to pay for that, you know, do you get them to pay once up front, you know, which might be an exorbitant amount of money over the life of the vehicle? Do you require them to have a subscription? Um, you know, this is this is a challenge that the industry is struggling with, and at least for you know these robo taxi type vehicles. Um, you know, or delivery vehicles, they are going to be in fleets because that's that's somewhere where you know you're going to have a recurring revenue stream, um, and you can you can bake that into the cost of that service. Um, you know, the the cost of you know the support can be baked into the cost of that service, much like you know you see Adobe, you know, doing now with Creative Suite. You know, they're they're baking the cost of the updates into that subscription. Model. Let me tell you, there was a lot of people who hate that idea. Well, to, to be fair, I mean, so I, as an Adobe customer and someone who works in the autonomous vehicle space, uh, I, I, I don't yet. Yeah, the Adobe model doesn't thrill me because the basic tasks of performing um, of, of graphic design could be performed perfectly well with a 10 or 20 year old installation of the creative suite. But safety is something which is always improving. <laughs> and the goal of 100% is probably almost certainly unattainable, but every day you want to be moving closer to it. So the enormous cost, as Sam pointed out correctly, of getting there, um, uh, it, it's always going to be there. We're always going to be investing in improving safety technology, and therefore there's always going to be a cost associated with updating that, that hardware and software to get safer every day. And that's why the commercial fleet ownership model makes sense. And the notion that one could spend $10,000 to buy extra as an option on a car that you buy today, 
that that gets you in the door for autonomous technology forever makes no sense. Because on the other side of that, the company that starts with a T is going to be, has to be invested. Yeah, they're going to have to be investing forever, Tesla, you know, in trying to make their system safer. And there are ongoing costs. And logically, you want to pass them on down to uh, somewhere. And so, of course, Tesla wants to get a subscription model because he needs some way of paying for the ongoing R&D um, to keep improving the system. Um, well, at a certain point, too, like you as the manufacturer, if you're liable for keeping those things up, you need to sunset that old hardware. There comes a point where how long is is long enough to support that stuff. And then how do you transition those owners to newer well, versions? Another reason why a commercial fleet ownership of autonomous vehicles is the model of anyone who is sane and rational, <laughs> you know, in, in, you know, for the first and probably several generations of vehicles, someday that could change. Um, but if you look at the, you know, the rumors that go on on the internet around Tesla updates, like there was rumored somebody, a guy green, the only on Twitter is one of these accounts who picks apart his Tesla, he opens up, looks at the code and he found that they're looking, they're talking about updating uh, sensors. So of course, updating sensors, because the current generation of Tesla's on the road, as Sam has pointed out, um, going back five years, the hardware has limitations. It has limitations. And someday, every, in fact, every year, better hardware is going to come out. And you're going to want to implement that and you're going to have to attach software for it. And then the bar for safety is going to go even higher. So the notion of permanence in technology makes no sense. The notion of permanent evolution makes perfect sense. And there's costs associated with it. Here, here. I agree with that. <laughs> All right. All well, right. it's been, let's see, we're, oh, it's 11 a.m. Uh, it's been an hour and 52 minutes. I think we should should wrap it up and let everybody get to their their mornings and let our listeners have a rest before they uh, wind up with the next episode because these are these are value-packed shows here in the church of wheelbarrows value-packed and if you want to hear no parking check us out on noparkingpodcast.com and ground truth the earl is groundtruthautonomy.com go go add them to your rss you know (laughs) podcatchers thanks alex Thanks for listening to Wheelbearings. Hey, we love to listen to our listeners, too. Drop us an email to feedback at wheelbearings.media with your thoughts, questions, or conversation starters. That's feedback at wheelbearings.media. You can also find us on Twitter at wheelbearingscast. Don't use any vowels except for the A in cast. So that's W-H-L-B-R-N-G-S cast. Thanks again. We hope to hear from you soon.